Some of you are here this morning and uh, you're here because you've been invited by a friend and uh, we've been in the midst of a sermon series for several weeks and um, perhaps you heard about this sermon series and you heard about this fantastic pastor who's preaching uh, these uh, wonderful sermons and I just want to be clear that I'm not that pastor. Uh, yes, you are. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to preach. Uh, but I, I want to be clear that I'm, I'm not Peter Hong. Uh, just, in, just in case it needs to, it needs to uh, be stated. For, for you who have come, uh, we're glad you're here. And we want to welcome you and invite you uh, to come back so that you can continue uh, to hear um, our preaching and teaching ministry. Whoever comes and uh, delivers uh, the, the message. Uh, I get to do that today and I'm excited to be here with you. And I want to start uh, this morning uh, by, by talking about a man, uh, telling you a little bit about a man of uh, power, a man with authority, a man with influence. This, this individual is a person who, once he came to power, he was heard by just about everybody. He was responded to by the people that, that listened or by the people around him. He was a person uh, with, with keen intellect. He was evil when he needed to be. He was shrewd in his business dealings. He, he was calculated in how he went about gaining military might and, 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 and power. This man was both praised and criticized. He was, he was, he was, he was loved and hated. He was um, uh, esteemed and devalued. His name is Frank Lucas. Frank Lucas is the person behind the, the newest film, uh, American Gangster, starring Denzel Washington and Russell Crowe. Anybody seen American Gangster? The, 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 the movie is about Frank Lucas, and, and his story starts when he is a little boy, and, and he's at his family's home, and he witnesses the, the, the removal from his home of his cousin. His little cousin is there. Two white police officers come in his house, forcibly remove the cousin, and violently end the child. From that episode in Frank Lucas's life, he begins a tension, a lifelong tension between abiding by the law and breaking the law. He begins a, a long life full of struggle with law enforcement. Remembering again and again this image of police officers removing his cousin, killing his cousin, treating his family like they have no value. And so the movie picks up with this individual, Frank Lucas, who is, who is responsible for the largest drug trading uh, uh, company, if you will, led by a single individual in the United States history in the 1960s and 70s. Frank Lucas 
runs a family business with drugs as his premier product. My wife and I went to see American Gangster a couple of weeks ago, and some of you know that Dawn writes film reviews. She uh, does these kinds of criticisms, and she didn't write a review uh, for the American Gangster, so I had to get some information from another critic, and I looked around, and one person says about this movie, he says, unfortunately, the story of, of uh, never seen new to me. I was reminded of other drug-related crime movies. It, it, it just never felt like I was watching a new story. And the truth is about this story, about American Gangster, about uh, Frank Lucas, is that his story is not new. It is, a, it is a familiar story. It is a story that we've all read or heard before. The unique part about it, if there is anything unique, is that in the 1960s and 70s, when everybody expects a person who is connected to the Italian mafia to be behind this drug trade, here's a black man. Frank Lucas' story, unfortunately, is not new. Frank Lucas' story is not novel. It is a story that if you've been around any length of time, you've heard before. And, 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 and so I looked, and, and, I, and, I, and I looked at Denzel Washington and Russell Crowe and some of the interviews they did, and, and when Denzel Washington talked about uh, learning uh, of this character and reading this script and encountering this person uh, behind the, the, the script, if you will, he talked about Mr. Lucas as if he is a brilliant man. He says he's a brilliant man. He considers him a family man. He considers himself to be a patriotic American. Here you have in this complicated person, someone who considers himself to be patriotic and at the same time responsible for the deaths of so many lives. Frank Lucas' story is not no. Indeed, he reminds me of another person. He reminds me of another man of power, another man of influence, another man who people respond to. His name is Nebuchadnezzar. And we've talked a little bit about Nebuchadnezzar. You've been around these weeks. We've, we've talked about Nebuchadnezzar in the same conversations where we've talked about Daniel. We've talked about Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. And, 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 and Nebuchadnezzar has been a part of our conversations, a part of our sermons, a part of our studies in our small groups. We've talked about uh, this individual and other individuals. And as I think about the connections between a non Christian film and this passage today, I think about this man called Nebuchadnezzar. He and Frank Lucas are quite alike. They are not both kings. One is a drug lord, the other is a Babylonian king, but they both have power. They both have respect in their own right. They both have influence. They both have a lot of money. They both have a lot of clout. They both are responsible for politically charged environments. One in Harlem in the 60s and 70s. The other in Babylon. 
We've been talking, hearing, and listening, as I said, to our pastor preach about uh, what it means for us to be rebels, what it means for followers of Jesus to, on the one hand, embrace our Christ and, on the other hand, engage with our culture. We've been listening and talking about what it means for us to to resist the temptation to fall away or separate ourselves from the wider non-Christian media culture and non-Christians and to be fully engaged, to be salt and to be light in the midst of a world that needs salt and that is dark. We've been talking from the book of Daniel. And this sermon series has has kept us thinking critically about our faith. We've talked about what people are saying about Christians, what people are saying about some of you, and all of you are not Christians. Everybody here we don't presume is a Christian. But for those of you that are, for those of us that follow Jesus, we've been wondering out loud about what it means for us to be followers of Jesus who embrace uh, a God and engage our culture, who don't do one or the other, but who try to struggle, who who try to do both, to be faithful to God, to be faithful to Jesus in a society that is hostile to that Jesus. What does it mean for us to, to seek the truth in a situation, in a climate where so many in our culture deny the truth? So Daniel has been our guide, if you will. The book of Daniel has been our map. And we've been looking through from chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. We've been surveying through these verses. We've been walking through these pages, wondering how Daniel connects with us. How does the testimony of a wise person, a Jewish scholar, if you will, and his Hebrew colleagues relate to us who are in Chicago, in a city, in a culture today that is very different from Babylon. In fact, uh, there aren't a whole lot of differences if we're honest about it. And we've been talking about those similarities. And and Daniel has provided for us, his friends have provided for us a, a model of what it looks like to love God and to engage in culture. To love your convictions, hold your convictions, and still be in exile while all of those convictions are questioned, all of those convictions are challenged, if not uprooted by an evil pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar, who doesn't worship the same God you worship, doesn't love the same God you love. I should say at the outset that Nebuchadnezzar Nebuchadnezzar is treated by the books of the Old Testament uh, in more than just the, the narrative of Daniel. When, when you want to learn about Nebuchadnezzar and, and some of our small groups will be talking about this message or some variation of the message this week in small groups or, or the next week. When you want to look at Nebuchadnezzar, we come to the, the book of Daniel. We can look at Ezekiel who, who talks a lot about uh, prophecies leading up to exile. He talks a lot about uh, Nebuchadnezzar Nebuchadnezzar, uh, Isaiah, particularly chapter 14, Jeremiah 50, 51, talks about Nebuchadnezzar. And all of these writers present this complicated individual who is evil. 
Nebuchadnezzar's mean. Have you ever met a mean individual? I mean, mean for no good reason at all. Just nasty. Nebuchadnezzar is just, he's just mean. He, he uh, in, in, in the second chapter of Daniel, has a dream. And he expects everybody to know what his dream is. How many of you go to sleep at night and you lean over, if you're married, you lean over your spouse when you get up and you say, tell me what I dreamt. Your spouse looks at you and says, yes, I knew it. You are out of your mind. Nebuchadnezzar comes to his royal court and he says when he wakes up with a, with a dream that makes him nervous, a dream that makes him anxious. Wise men, tell me what the dream was and give me an interpretation. They couldn't do it. So he orders the killing of all of them. Well, die then. He's a, he's a madman. He's evil. He's cruel. And, and, and that's just chapter 2. You think that after Daniel comes along, knows the dream, by the power of God interprets the dream, you'd think that Nebuchadnezzar would lighten up. No, he doesn't lighten up. In chapter 3, he comes and he sets up a golden image. You've been here. You heard us talk about that. He sets up an image. He invites the three Hebrew leaders, men that he has actually given position to, to, to worship other gods. They don't do it. He says, okay. Turn up the furnace, you'll die today. This man is getting worse. He's, his, 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 his complicated conversion is getting harder. And I'm sitting and I'm wondering as we go through these chapters, okay, this man is pretty stern. He's, he's furious, he's upset. God, can you do something with a person like this? Throughout Daniel, part of what we see is Nebuchadnezzar's cruelty. We see his complex personality. But the other side of what we see is God's response to what is happening in Nebuchadnezzar. We see Nebuchadnezzar, who is a cruel man. We see a man with power. How, 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 how dangerous can you get a person with power who's cruel? He's mean and he has authority. But we also see God ministering to this person, pulling him. We see God through the examples of Daniel, through the examples of the other children of Israel in exile ministering, speaking truth to this mean man with power and God is pulling a person whose heart is hard. God is luring Nebuchadnezzar who by all uh, accounts looks like it is impossible to redeem. Do you know of instances, examples when God has taken a situation in your life and it looked like something that nothing could be done with and yet God used something, somebody to pull you, to lure you, to attract you, to say to you in God's way, God's way so that you could understand. Yes, you're screwed up. Yes, you're mean, you're cruel. If, if most people read your story, they will say to you, God can do nothing with this person. Yes, you're the type of person who is so wicked that you do not deserve to be loved. You are that person. I am that person. When we look at our dispositions and personalities, there is no hope. But God is pulling you through chapter 1. 
God is pulling you through. The marriage that failed, God is pulling you. When you thought you were a brilliant student and you got a C, you got a D, you even had to drop a class because you weren't as smart as you thought you were. God is pulling you. God is attracting you by a word that's stronger than you to say to you, there's grace for you too. So Nebuchadnezzar is a, is a man who is complicated. And when we come to chapter 4 of Daniel, when we get to the opening verses of chapter 4, we see a king who has, uh, who has praised the gods in chapter 3. He uh, promotes Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He exalts their God. He says, no other God can stay in the furnace after delivering you out of the furnace. And, and we talked about how this story was an image of the pre-incarnate Christ present with us in suffering. So that when we go through suffering, we don't have to think we're alone. And, and after that wonderful miracle... Nebuchadnezzar closes the chapter, uh, or rather, with, with, with a promotion of these men. Come to chapter 4, and, and, and the first verses of chapter 4 are a praise, their song to God. And in chapter, and verse 3, he says, I want you all to know, and this isn't on the slide, just hear this. I want you all to know about the miraculous signs and wonders the Most High God has performed for me. Right there, you get a glimpse of complicated conversion. In the RE, would call this man a complicated melody. Nebuchadnezzar, he's praised the gods, and then he says, Come, everybody under my domain, and hear about the miracles that God has performed for me. Nebuchadnezzar shows us a glimpse of his spiritual process. He shows us that he isn't there yet. Because he thinks that every miracle that he's seen is about him. He really believes, he's publishing throughout his empire, that God is at work. God is doing all of these wonderful miracles for his own agenda. And, 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 and if we are honest, we have to struggle with whether or not we are in the same place. Have you ever, have you ever prayed, and maybe this is just me, and if it is, don't talk about me, just pray for me. But, but sometimes, sometimes, sometimes I find myself, I know, I know that you don't do this, but sometimes I find myself acting like God is, is at my beck and call. You know how it looks for me? And this, again, this is, this is just one person out of 533. Uh, this, is, this is me. I'm downtown in Chicago, you know, and I'm driving, and I'm saying, God, can you just provide me a parking space? I just... <sighs> you said whatever I ask in Jesus' name. I... I know you don't do that. I know you've never done that. Just half of other Chicago, everybody else in the city. But... There I am thinking, in other words, that whoever else, and I wasn't downtown yesterday, but whoever else wants to see them turn on a light switch on Michigan Avenue, doesn't pray the same prayer, isn't driving, trying to get a parking space too. Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar 
debases God to a place of his own service. So, so God is at my service here in chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar tells a dream to Daniel, and, and we'll read the, the, the statement of the dream in a few moments, but he tells this dream to Daniel. And, and he says in this uh, uh, talking to Daniel, in other words, I, I, uh, I, I've had another dream that is producing anxiety in my heart. Can you explore this with me? Can you tell me what this is about? And here is the message that begins to come up in Daniel chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar wants to be more than he is. He wants to be more than human. He has deep in his heart something that is a desire that God is waiting for him to change, to come through, that God is waiting to transform. It is a deep commitment. It is a deep conviction. Nebuchadnezzar has in his heart the belief that he is the center of his life. And in this chapter, God sees this king's deep commitment and does something just as deep because as Nebuchadnezzar has a deep desire to be king, to be over his empire, to be the one who sets the agenda for Israel, God has a deeper commitment and God speaks through a dream in Nebuchadnezzar's sleep to try to unsettle him enough to remember who the true God is, to remember who the true king is. When we have a deep commitment, when we hold to something deep, God has to do something radical to scare us, to shake us up, to shake us out of our idolatry, to shake us out of our... God is is so loving that he will deliver a dream to you to try to convince you that you were never designed to be God. Just as Nebuchadnezzar says, this is my king, look at my Babylon, look at this beautiful situation that I've created, God stands and, and hears and and shudders at the thought that his, his servant, the king, can believe something so wrong about himself. And so we come to chapter 4, verses 19 and following. If you have your Bibles, turn there. If not, look at the screen as we look at these verses, as we read these verses. Upon hearing this, Daniel, also known as Belshazzar, was overcome for a time, frightened by the meaning of the dream. Then the king said to him, Belshazzar, don't be alarmed by the dream and what it means. Belshazzar replied, I wish the events foreshadowed in this dream would happen to your enemies, not you, my lord. The tree you saw was growing very tall and strong. 
reaching high into the heavens for all the world to see. It had fresh green leaves and was loaded with fruit for all to eat. Wild animals lived in its shade and birds nested in its branches. That tree, your majesty, is you. For you have grown strong and great. Your greatness reaches up to heaven and your rule to the ends of the earth. Then you saw a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump and its roots in the ground, bound with a band of iron and bronze and surrounded by tender grass. Let him be drenched with dew of heaven. Let him live with the animals of the field for seven periods of time. This is what the dream means. Your majesty and what the most high has declared will happen to my lord the king. You will be driven from human society. You will live in the fields with the wild animals. You will eat grass like a cow and you will be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven periods of time will pass while you live this way. Until you learn that the most high rules over the kingdoms of the world and gives them to anyone he chooses. But the stump and roots of the tree were left in the ground. This means that you will receive your kingdom back again when you have learned that heaven rules. King Nebuchadnezzar, please accept my advice. Stop sinning and do what is right. Break from your wicked past and be merciful to the poor. Perhaps then you will continue to prosper. But all these things did happen to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, he was taking a walk on the flat roof of the royal palace in Babylon. As he looked out across the city, he said, Look at this great city of Babylon. By my own mighty power, I have built this beautiful city as my royal residence to display my majestic splendor. You think that Nebuchadnezzar would see a pattern. I mean, he's a, I'm going to keep reading, but he's, he's a king, right? So you've got to be pretty smart to be a king. And you've had a dream that made you upset before. You'd think that, you know, he goes and says, what's the dream about? You'd think he'd know. Okay, you're at the center of this dream. And he doesn't get it. And I'm frustrated with him because he doesn't get it. He's a, he's a man who has the, the, the people of Israel under his thumb. They are in exile and he doesn't get it. Anyway, while these words were still in his mouth, A voice called down from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, this message is for you. You are no longer ruler of this kingdom. You will be driven from human society. You will live in the fields with the wild animals and you will eat grass like a cow. Seven periods of time will pass while you live this way until you learn that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of the world and gives them to anyone he chooses. That same hour, the judgment was fulfilled. And Nebuchadnezzar was driven from human society. He ate grass like a cow and was drenched with the dew of heaven. He lived this way until his hair uh, was as long as eagles' feathers and his nails were like birds' claws. Nebuchadnezzar has his second dream that terrifies him. And he somehow continues to hold to the lie that he is the true king. 
he somehow holds to this false perception that he is what Jeremiah calls the resting place of Israel, that he is Israel's ancestor's hope. Nebuchadnezzar somehow believes, I mean, he wakes up from the second terrifying nightmare and, and, and he still holds, he hears the interpretation, 12 months goes by and he still believes That he can box with God, that he can displace God from his throne. He has deep commitment to himself. And God sends this prophet again to, to, to warn him. And sometimes it's, it's hard for us to receive the truth before something terrible happens to us. Have, have you ever noticed, um, have you ever had your heart broken? Anybody ever had your heart broken? Anybody? The first time my heart was broken, I was in first grade. Her name was, her name was Miss Khan. Oh. Oh, God. Oh, God. Miss Khan. Let me tell you. Can I tell you? Adam, Miss Khan. She was married, and I knew that, okay? I knew, I knew, I knew, but I had hope. I, I, believed, I believed that Miss Khan would see me in her first grade class and, and be smitten by me. And, I'm, and, and one summer, we go out on break, and I come back. It wasn't summer. It had to be, it had to be maybe, I don't know, maybe it was summer. I don't know if I was in her class or I was going to come back from this break, and she's pregnant. I'm sitting there and I'm wondering, how could you do this to me? Miss <laughs> Khan broke my heart. And, you know, I've had my heart broken once or twice since then, but, but here's, 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 the, here's the truth. When your heart is broken by somebody you love, you find out who you really love. You find out where your heart really is when your heart is broken because you get to see where the center of your heart is. You get to see who you really love. It's, it's like when, you, when you're working and you're accustomed to getting income, you, you, know, you don't think anything about it, uh, but when you lose your job or when you lose income, you begin to see who and in what you really trust. You begin to see what you hold to, what you're committed to when this, this terrible dream of a heartbreak or a loss of employment happens to you. And Nebuchadnezzar has this dream and he in some ways is converting, in some ways he's going through a slow process of getting to meet this most high God. But God is using whatever has to happen to convince this man that he is not the apex of Israel. And, and when I think about mental health, because uh, this, this, passage, this passage is an automatic reminder of, of mental health or the lack thereof, I think about it theologically. And, and I think uh, about mental health in this way. You are mentally healthy, emotionally healthy, as long as you keep your, your, your grip on reality, if you will. And once Nebuchadnezzar loses the, the, the real presence of Christ, the real sovereignty of God, rather, once he, once he dismisses God as the true king of 
Israel, he begins a slow process toward losing his mind. It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen uh, in the 12 months. It happens well before the second dream. It happens well before the first dream. He begins to set himself up as the center of Israel. And when he sets himself up as the center and leader of God's people, he dismisses the God of Israel as weak and powerless. And friends of mine, can I tell you, God just won't, he won't, he won't stand for that. God won't allow you to think that you're stronger than God. God is loving, God is nice, ah, yes, but you mess with the kingdom of God, and, and, and it's not that God is pushing you, it's the natural consequence to your own choice, it's the natural consequence to my own choice, God doesn't have to do anything, God just has to let you be, leaving you to believe a lie that you yourself are God, that you yourself are the one who is wise enough to make decisions about your career, and you'll slowly go nuts. You'll slowly go crazy because as Pastor Peter has said, even today, reminded us over and over again, we are not good kings. We are not good queens. We are not good rulers of our own lives. And so God here waits for Nebuchadnezzar. And I want you to see a picture, not of, of, a, of a judgmental God in the traditional sense, but I want you to, to get a glimpse of God who is judgmental with judgment meaning weight. And I'm going to talk a little bit about judgment in a moment, uh, but, but Nebuchadnezzar here, he's, he's listening to Daniel, he's going through these 12 months, and, and as I talk a little bit, let me, let me talk a little bit about idolatry, because what what happens in Nebuchadnezzar is not a quick process. It is not an immediate process. Idolatry is not immediate. It is a very slow process. It is a process that happens over time. And Nebuchadnezzar here is already in the midst of a complicated conversion experience. He is given, hear me, he is given 12 months to struggle with Daniel's, uh, Daniel's interpretation of this dream. When I was doing exegesis on this text, my wife said, you know, you get, ex you get work from everywhere. You hear conversations and you just still them. Uh, so my wife says that 12 months in this text reminds her of grace. And uh, I'm going to mess up my mic. Uh, 12 months, a reminder of grace. 12 months is time for God, uh, uh, for grace to take shape in Nebuchadnezzar's life. And, 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 and look at your life and, and ask this question this morning. Where in my life have I been given uh, uh, 12 months to get it together? Not 12 calendar months, not 12 literal months, but where in your life have you been given enough space to say, I'm not in control, God, you're in control. Because if we are not saying that, those 12 months, those days of grace are turning not into days where we exemplify grace, but those are turning into days where we say to God, who's by our side, I am better than you, I am smarter than you, I am stronger than you. His idolatry 
is not immediate. His idolatry, secondly, is a process whereby he sets himself up as the center of what is good in his life and what is bad in his life. Now, this is two particular things. On the one hand, he says to himself, look at my city Babylon. Look at the good that I've created. Look at the good that I'm responsible for. And he says to himself, this is all my doing. The good in my life, the second, the second slide there, uh, the second slide, it, the good in my life is because of my skills. So, you know, I got this wonderful degree. I must be so smart. Look at my job. Look at the influence that I have. I worked really hard to get it. good is easy. The bad, on the other hand, is this. The, the, the situations that I'm going through, the suffering in my life, is, must, be, must be a result of my sin. Must be because I haven't gotten it together. Must be because I am so despicable. I am so degraded. I am so, I am so not holy. I'm so unholy. I'm irredeemable. And can you imagine Jesus uh, hearing you think that you are the starting point of the bad in your life? You're so depressed because you feel like if you made better choices, you would have a different spiritual life. If you made better choices, you could be saved. You could embrace the gospel. If you just heard that second part of the gospel message where I am so wicked, I am so sinful, but I am also deeply loved, unconditionally wanted by God you are sitting saying this suffering this bad must be because I am so sinful and to you with power who has skill and you are saying on the one hand the good that I have in my life is because my family is a great family or to you on the other who's saying the suffering and the evil in my life is because I am so suffering I am so bad Jesus says to you both Jesus says to us all my gospel comes and says to you you are wicked you are sinful you deserve punishment you deserve to be cast off but I love you perfectly I love you completely I want you I desire you and I desire you so much that I will put in place my own suffering to make sure that you don't believe you're God that you don't believe you can atone for yourself the third thing that happens is judgment comes and I'm not going to be able to finish all of this, but, but this last piece here, judgment comes. And, 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 and before you tune me out and think about wrath and think about fire and think about, you know, hell, here, here is judgment as we see it in Daniel chapter 4. Here is judgment. Nebuchadnezzar says, you say, I say, in our marriages, in our relationships, at our work, in our leadership. The center of this this is because of my good or my bad. This is because of what I've done or what I haven't done. God, God says to us, I love you too much for you to believe that you're at the center of your life. I'll send grace. 
I'll send a warning. I'll send Daniel to say, stop sinning. Embrace uh, social justice. Uh, Release the oppressed. Be kind. Be merciful to the poor. God does all of those things to try to get you to see your idols and to repent from your idols. See my idols. Repent from my sin. All of that. And here is judgment. God saying to you, this is what you want. This is what you will have. Judgment is God doing nothing. Judgment is God saying, I have made grace available to you, but I love you so much, given you free choice. I've given you the cross. I've given you my son Jesus. You don't want it. I will wait for you. And judgment, sister, judgment, brother, is God in pain waiting for you. Judgment is God, not you, because you get what you want. God, however, doesn't get, because God wants you. How is God responding to my idolatry? How is God responding to you being the king of your own life? God is agonizing because Jesus is saying, why am I not good enough for you? Why does my sacrifice not cover your sin?" Why are you so bad that I can't redeem you? Because as far as I see it, God says, there is nothing you could do to remove my perfect, unconditional love for you. Last night, next night, whenever, whatever, you are not the king of your own life. I am the king of your own life. And until you go through your seasons, until you come to your senses, I will wait I will wait for you. Thaddeus, come on up. The last, the last time I went into, uh, into the psych ward, I went to visit a, a, a member of the church where I was, and uh, she, uh, the, the nurses had called the church uh, she, she said um, that this particular member wanted to see a senior pastor or me, named the two of us. And I'm like, great. Um, and what I mean by great is I was nervous because, you know, the stakes go up, right, when, when you're named, when you're asked for. And so I get to little company of Mary uh, and I go to, go to the, the wing there and said, lady, this is part of the reason why I opened up. I'm not Peter Hong. Lady says, are you Bishop Trotter? I'm like, do I look like, do you know? No, I'm not. And so, so in the midst of my no, I'm not, our member comes around the corner, and she, she starts to run to me, and she literally runs to me. And, and, and I'm standing there. We're holding each other at the desk here in the hospital. The nurses are looking. They're kind of, you know, is this supposed to happen? Is this what people do when their pastors come? You know, okay, all right, whatever. Um, no, this is a psych ward. So, you know, they, they're accustomed to all kinds of stuff happening. Uh, <laughs> somehow we walk to the room. We're embracing, walking, and and. and and for, for about 10, 12 minutes, she doesn't say anything. She just sobs, cries. 
after a while, she starts talking about what's, what, what is going on. It's very clear, very coherent sentences, not, you know, disjointed, nothing like that. No logic disjointed, nothing like that. And she, she begins to talk. And, and you know what becomes clear for me as I think about that? Is a picture of what God does for us when we're in Nebuchadnezzar's condition thinking something greater than something greater of ourselves than really is true we want humanity we want to be connected we want to be in community but we have an opposing desire to be in control of our lives to be in control of our times and so what happens is we lose contact with humanity which is what we truly need in order to be the gods that we also want to be and God is saying I have exactly what you need I have exactly the community the presence the embrace that you need And if you will run to me, I will be here for you. If you will take a step from your false God, from your idol, from the belief that your beauty makes you who you are, from the belief that what you produce makes you valuable, from the belief that what you do makes you significant, if you turn away from it, if you come in my direction, I will be here for you. So here is the question. What will you do? Will you look at your idol and say, this is good. This is a king. This has been a king. But there is another king. There is another kingdom. There is a greater king. Pray with me. God, we sang you are our king as we think through as we hear these words about Nebuchadnezzar as we hear these words this story will you make our desire to be close to you will you make in our lives a hunger and a thirst for the true king for your kingdom In Jesus' name. As Pastor Michael has reminded us powerfully this morning, um, as you come up to partake of communion, remember that this is more than just a ritual. This is more than just a formal act uh, that we get accustomed to doing in church. But there's powerful truth, powerful reality revealed. And the night that he was betrayed, the Bible says that Jesus took bread, and when he broke it, he said, This is my body, broken for you. Whenever you take it, do it in remembrance of me, that his body was broken for you and for me. The Bible also says in the same way he took the cup, saying this is the cup of the new covenant that represents the fact that there's forgiveness in his blood, there's forgiveness in his blood shed for us, and that forgiveness is open and available to anyone who would humbly come to him. Christian or not, this morning forgiveness is offered for you. 
Embrace it and receive it in his name. Communion servers will be stationed in various parts of the sanctuary. If anybody is in need of prayer, I'm going to ask Michael, as well as some folks from the prayer team, to be up front. Please don't hesitate to come up and ask us for prayer. Whenever you're ready, whenever you're ready, take your time doing this. Come forward. Go to the various parts of the sanctuary. And do business with God this morning. The Lord invites us. Think of what it is that you have been and you are building your life and your foundation on. And leave today with the encouragement and affirmation that whatever it is, we are building a life on can't stand. It can't. Reality, life will show us we can't. But the good news that Jesus Christ has come so that he can be our foundation that is immovable, unshakable, unchanging. Amen? Child of God, leave this place knowing that your God who has created you, who has redeemed you, is a God who is your foundation, who is your security, who is your identity, who is your God. May we be bold and courageous enough to acknowledge and admit the false idols and false gods and false securities in our life. For that process of acknowledgement is the beginning of the journey of healing and of redemption. Our God loves you unconditionally. Our God is for you. So who can be against us? And as you leave this place, know that this God who is for you, who is with you, goes before you, goes behind you, goes beside you. Leave this place assured of his love for you, assured of his comfort and his strength that is found in his spirit. And the sacrificial, sacrificial enduring love displayed for us on the cross and yet reminded to us every day by the power of his spirit so that you can live in boldness and in courage. We pray and declare this in the name of the Son and the name of the Father and the name of the Spirit. And all of God's people said, Amen. For those of you leaving for Thanksgiving, have great holidays. We look forward to seeing you back as we continue our journey.